Hey everyone. If you like this podcast, go behind the paywall to get privileged access to the smartest minds in finance. Visit realvision.com slash rvpod and use the promo code podcast10. That's podcast10 to get 10% off our essential membership for the first year. Join the Real Vision community and learn how to become a better investor. And now to the top analysis of today's markets. Is the bad news already priced into tech? Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. With me today is Jeremy Schwartz, Global CIO of Wisdom Tree. Hi, Jeremy. Great to be with you, Maggie. Pleasure Great to be to here. Great to see you again. Yeah, we got a little bit of a quiet day today, but there's a lot of stuff going on sort of around the markets and a lot of uh, reports that people are anticipating. So let, let's start with the macro picture um, because we do have everyone in a holding pattern for the big inflation reports. We know how much they matter to the Fed and everyone's trying to figure out sort of what the next move is and if we're done. Consumer prices are out Wednesday, producer prices Thursday. Do you think that the readings are going to create a problem for the Fed? Well, we think they've already created their own problem because we've been saying they're too tight and they should not be so hawkish that things are trending well for them. They're looking at some of the wrong data, but I think that they are, you know, based on what they are looking at and what they're communicating, that you know, this is it was sort of their last hike. That the bar to raise or lower is quite high. That you know that that they need to, and you're seeing a little bit more commentary. Uh, sort of Goolsby was on the wires, quoted as the vibes. Yeah, I love that. First time I heard the governor talk about the vibes that were being sent. <laughs> we were hoping he would dissent and that he'd come out stronger. He didn't dissent, but you know, you could you could tell the message is going that, you know, the, the bank le- the bank lending, we've been saying could be as much as three or four hikes. You've got people like Torsten Slock who says six hikes. Like Torsten's been saying, he's a chief economist from Apollo saying that the tightness in lending standards and Apollo knows something about lending. I mean, they do lending. And, you know, he says it's, it's 150 basis points. So six hikes, we say maybe three, maybe four. And some of the Fed were saying one. So we, we definitely see what's going to happen in bank lending acting as another mitigating factor. Plus, we see the data, uh, you know, we've been talking a lot about the lag data, the lag data in housing, that that's going to feed into much lower inflation. If they used updated data, they'd actually see they're right at their 2% target. I mean, I can't wait to update. We have an alt inflation series com- compared to the Fed in the BLS official inflation series. And, you know, my projections are showing that the core rate would be below 2 on my on my data. So it'll be interesting to see what we get tomorrow, but we don't think they're going to move in one way or another in the short term, but they should be cutting really. So that's so interesting. You so you run a you run a separate series pulling in things that the Fed's not looking at. So you think they're measuring inflation incorrectly. Yeah, and you know in in, in normal times, you you know, you could say in in it didn't matter in many ways, but recently, you know, with when what happened with the pandemic and housing prices went up 40%, the way they measure housing inflation uses owner's equivalent rent and then a lagged way of even getting rental data. So housing is a real-time indicator. You see what's happening in the housing market every day. And you could use things like the Case-Shiller housing index, which is a very good index for home prices. Uh, you can use Zillow rent. There's all sorts of other rental indexes that are more real time than the way the Fed surveys this. Um, and it just takes a very long time for what happened in reality to show up. And like the, as an example, the Case-Shiller index was up 40% and the CPI for 
housing was up 10%. I mean, it was like so lagged in terms of reflecting reality. And so that's come down, it's coming way down. And if you would use the deflation that you're seeing, I mean, it's not just slower rice price increases, housing are coming down. And so if you factor that into the CPI, you know, we're, we've been showing nine months in a row, like basically the last nine months average deflation in both course, in, in core CPI. Um, and so that's a, 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 you know, and so really we're relying on inflation months and months ago, a year ago to say that we're sort of still too hawkish. So I, I do think my number will show around 2% or below tomorrow. Uh, and so I'll it's extraordinary that they are, they are pursuing this policy if that's really what's going on in the ground. I mean, basically they're just overdoing it if that's true. That is definitely our take. Our take is they're definitely overdoing it. Plus, you get this additional bank tightening that's going to be occurring. Uh, you know, it just hasn't fully been reflected. I mean, still, still pretty early after the SVB fallout. And you know, we I, we still call it um, not that there's a bank run for safety fears, like that there's the, that you've got to you know, if you have deposit over two fifty above the FDIC insurance, have to worry about that. No. But do you have to be cognizant that you can now get 5% plus in treasuries? Yes. I mean, who's not looking that, you know, we have an ETF, USFR, that has 5.3 as the yield today. I mean, it's got one week duration. So it's basically a cash-like alternative. You just can't spend off of it. Now we're working on ways to do that in the future. But the ETF, you get 5.3. You know, the day my bonus check cleared, I moved it over and bought the ETF because why keep it in zero? You know, and the banks yeah. are not competitive. And so that's a real issue for the banks. We, a lot of us have been calling it the bank walk. Uh, my colleague, Jeff Winninger, I think was one of the original who coined the term, but I see a lot of people talk about it. Um, and, you know, so this bank walk towards higher yielding treasuries is is happening. So you see this, you, do you see continued problems in the banking sector because of that? It, you and they're gonna well. There's gonna be for sure problems on profitability because they're gonna be more and more competition over the long run and the short run. I mean that that they, that people will continue to see. I can get five percent plus in treasuries. More conversations about our, what are you doing in your checking account? Friends saying, are you have you done it yet? Have you moved? You know, how are you managing your cash? And so you know, there's definitely a huge amount that's still earning zero. And you go to these investor relation decks for the banks, and they talk about why their clients don't care about earning zero. <laughs> you know, oh, I think that's a, that's By the a way, bad I'm getting model. solicited. This is sort of interesting because we see that we know that, that, that there's, there are people are moving for safety reasons to the bigger banks. I, I was solicited by a major, you know, big institution to switch my money over to get a higher yield. I mean, you know, it's, it's, yeah. it's they're also taking advantage from a competitive point of view. I don't say taking advantage is the right word, taking advantage of the operative, the situation to, you know, do what they do. So that that's added pressure. If you weren't aware of it already, you just have to open your email box to figure it out. And now on your phone, Apple is offering 4% savings accounts. And in okay. the first four days, they got like a billion dollars that went into the Apple savings account at 4%. And that's still 100 basis points below what you could get in that ETF. I talked about USFRs in the fives, 530, still 100. Apple and Goldman are basically taking 100 basis points. So you can do better than, than that. So how does this how does this play out then? Because presumably, even though it's slow motion, this is just going to continue until either the Fed eases, which will start to bring it, but that's a long way to go 
to get down to where, you know, yeah. to where they are is still going to be a differential. Or do you do you think that the the regulators step in somehow or the Fed step in or something happens on that front? Well, it's going to be fascinating how it all, I mean, this, this walk that we're talking about is going to take a long time to play out, um, I think. I mean, I don't think it's just an overnight type of thing. It, it takes time for people to continue to hear the pressure and for them to move. Um, so that takes time. A lot of the, you know, so far the trouble with the banks has been just this treasury and duration management and the deposit moving and then having to mark down the assets because they they do have to sort of sell them and they have to pay the deposits. So that's a different issue than sort of a credit event that we had in, in this last real banking dynamic. Um, and so I, it's, it's interesting, Joe, that we've had a lot of pressure just through treasuries and duration and not any credit cycle. So we haven't really seen the slowdown. Um, and so if you say, hey, we've got another four hikes that come from the tightness in lending, you know, you can have more more sort of credit stuff taking out over time also. So there is definitely a risk. Um, you know, you will be careful because there's a lot of bearishness out there. And I think, you know, a lot of people say the bull case is that there's so much bearishness out there. And I, I want to be careful from being overly cautious. But there is definitely a lot of reasons to be cautious now um, from the Fed being too tight. Hey, everyone, we're going to take a quick break right now to hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. Um, hi, Andre from Portugal. We have people rolling in from all over the place, which we appreciate. Uh, I just want to go back to inflation for a second, Jeremy, because I'm so interested in this. If the real read is so much lower I, I know we're going to see in, in the comments right now in the chat, like, but I feel it, right? I feel it in my grocery bill. I feel like it's still running high. Why is it, is it just still a product of some of the ag prices being up? Why do we still feel like we're paying so much more if the Fed's wrong and you're right that it's come down a lot? Well, the the, they are, the trend is certainly rolling over. Um, now, they're not going to go back to where they were pre-pandemic. Right? So we had a 40% increase in the money supply. Mm. And in general, prices were going to go above trend. But now the, the impulse is down. So their goods prices have rolled over. Commodity prices have generally rolled over. I, I showed a chart showing how commodity prices were up, and now they've been coming back down. I mean, they, the, the trend on commodities are, are generally down. Um, and that's reflected in goods prices. Uh, and even Powell talked about it. Hey, we had some declining food goods prices. Uh, now, what I'm saying about, which is 40% of core CPI is housing. That housing is coming down. And it should, because mortgage rates, you know, are high, much higher than they were before. And we had a really an unsustainable boom in housing. And, you know, you, you saw some crazy bidding, people looking at documents or, or making bids without even seeing houses. I hear all sorts of crazy stories. Now, I, you know, you hear, hey, maybe housing's not going to really come down. We thought it could come down 10, 15% because of the higher rates. Uh, but I, you also hear stories that there's just not a lot of supply. And so, you know, maybe it doesn't really come down as much as we think it should, like the 10%. But mm. the housing is definitely deflating in some ways. And that's offsetting. If you factor the real-time housing data, that would further offset it. Uh, and and then what's what's left there is some lagging service inflation that Powell's talking about. And and some of that is just much slower moving and, uh, you know, eventually will trend down. But it the housing is a big offset towards what's happening if they reflected real data that's showing declines versus sort of the lagged increases from way long time ago. 
Yeah, that's so important. Um, Paul asking, did Warren Buffett or Charlie Munger say anything about Powell and the current CPI and interest rate situation? So I, I thought there were a few. I spent the five hours on Saturday. My family was out there doing stuff, and I stayed home watching the thing, riveting TV. Um, <laughs> but the you know, it's a few different things. A few things struck me. One is, I mean, on the banks that we just talked about, a lot of people were expecting Buffett to come in and buy the banks he did in the financial crisis. And you know, what's fascinating to me, I mean, I learned something from that segment of the of the show, um, where. He basically talked about in 1969, he was buying some small banks. And actually, at the time, he had as much banks as an insurance, and he wanted to buy more banks. And it was the Bank Holding Company Act of 1970 that sort of stopped him in his tracks from buying more banks. There was a chance that he could have been a large bank, but they basically forced him to go down the path of being a large insurance company because he loved getting the float. He would do the insurance operations. People would pay their premiums. He would then go invest the premiums. He could have been a bank with leverage and been doing the same type of thing, but they stopped him because of this bank holding company act. So all these people wanting Buffett to get back and save the regional banks, if they got rid of the bank holding company act, I almost guarantee you he would get back involved. Um, and even sort of some people talk about the Clayton Homes, which he owns this segment of Clayton Homes, and they have they have mortgages for people who buy those homes so they have a mini little division, but they don't have a real bank. Uh, and you could see them expanding. They've never had any credit problems at their bank, but you could see him doing more if they got rid of this bank holding company. It was interesting history of how he could have been a larger bank. Now, he, he defends Powell. He keeps saying Powell knows the right thing. I think he's been overly positive on Powell if we had a disagreement there. And he says he's not really a macro guy. I mean, they do talk about profits being down across their businesses this year. So that's one of the signs you have a little bit of an earnings recession and, and other slowdowns in things. So that, that was probably the biggest economic oriented thing is saying, hey, mm -hmm. we see profits declining across our businesses. But the bank comments were were, were quite interesting. Yeah, they were. Um, uh, Paul also, by the way, asking, did you give a ticker on an ETF? I think he's talking about the ETF that you were mentioning that yields. Yeah. Yeah, what's what is as a wisdom tree ETF, right? USFR, US floating rate, floating rate treasury. So the the rates reset every week. So right now, when you go to our website and you pull up the USFR detail page, you'll see an embedded income yield. As of today, it was five thirty three, which is fascinating because again, that's higher than the Fed funds rate. And you say, well, why is there a five thirty three? It resets with the weekly table auction. The, the latest auction was 514. There was a, there's also a spread that they issue on top of that. And so you get this 19 basis point spread on top of that. Uh, and, and actually where you are in the Fed cycle, that spread is, is now positive. When, when people were, when they were sharply rising rates, because this rate resets every week, people might pay a little bit of access to get that, but the spread is now positive at 533 because they're not expecting much faster rate increases. So you get a nice positive spread above things. Again, it, it resets every week. So the principal volatility is is quite low because of you, of you know, it really doesn't really move with, with much prices. You're just collecting that 533 uh, with, with the, the weekly resets. Mm -hmm. uh, Bo asking, do you think, looking out, it's looking more like deflation or stagflation? Well, the 
we are our, 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 we think we're coming back towards the two to three percent. We're not overly concerned that you have a four to five percent inflation forever. So you know our our view is the more correct data shows inflation is contained. There's definitely people who worry that the new supply chains, the geopolitical tensions with China going away from, you know, China was a big deflationary force for the last two decades that, hey, bringing supply chains back to the US, we're gonna increase costs. And the energy dynamic, that was another thing from the Buffett meeting, he talked a lot about oil. And you can say, you know, the, of the things he talked positively about, oil was one of them. He said, hey, this is one of the commodities that could have a upward thrust for inflation. That is a risk, you know, to our view that inflation is coming down. Um, and, and so we can talk more about that oil in a second. But I, I, I generally think we're not overly worried about elevated inflation. And we are, you know, we're, we're more worried about the slowdown at the moment. I mean, we, we think there's a, a definitely a, a bigger chance of a slowdown because of all, all of that's happening. Um, interestingly, I think that I think you um, had sent an email to me. He was all the only other. There's only other one thing he was kind of positive about, and it was Japan. Oil in Japan. So let's we'll, let's we'll say on oil for a second, just because it's inflation theme. Then we'll get to Japan. I mean, he's obviously been a big buyer of Occidental. Um, he's also held Chevron uh, in in a pretty large weight. And Occidental, um, you know, he owns almost a quarter of it. And and people were saying, well, is he going to go for control? And it sort of sold off on Monday a little bit when oil was up maybe on fears of, of, of not going for control. But the you know energy itself, he told a really great story about you know Charlie who bought a royalty for $1,000 and is getting these $70,000 royalties 50 years later from this oil well that's still printing out oil. And he said the Permian, where a lot of these things are, where you know, we've been, the US has been a big swing producer and we're producing all this more oil. So that's helped the global supply and the wells for that are not the same as Charlie's well that's printing his $70,000 checks for a $1,000 investment. Those wells run dry much quicker. And so where we added about 5 million barrels of oil from recent drilling in the last, de- you know, call it half decade, that those wells may dry up very, very quickly. And so his, his part of his thesis, I think, on oil is that, hey, we're continuing to need oil for the foreseeable future as much as we want to go to EVs and other things. We're going to still be using a lot of global oil. And if you had a few million barrels come off because the investment hasn't been there or just doesn't, the oils, the wells don't produce as long as you hope, then, you know, that could be a, a, a bullish oil scenario. And I hear a lot of people who are constructively bullish oil. Now, it's also one of the cheapest sectors in the market. As a whole, it's about a 10 PE, which is a 10% earnings yield. Uh, it's a high dividend sector. So in all of our in our high dividend strategies, we have about 20% in energy. And it, you know, at the bottom, it was only 3% of the SP 100. It's back to 5% after a big move last year. But I I like oil. And one of your one of your your co-hosts on some of these shows, Warren Pies, he comes on a lot of these uh, yeah. real vision briefings. He wrote some very interesting research talking about energy as a sector is one of the best diversifiers to the S&P, one of the only negatively correlated sectors. It's got this inflation hedge built into it. So if I'm wrong, that inflation is sort of trending down. Energy is a great sector to offset that, acting like sort of bonds as diversifiers. I I love Buffett's energy story, and I'm also constructive on it. We're going to take another quick break to hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. 
I'm going to, I'm going to, I want to, you mentioned Warren Pies and it's interesting. We've got a question about that because our audience is familiar with Warren's work. Um, and uh, this is from Saul. Warren pointed out this would be the first time equities have cyclically bottomed in the yield curve inversion. How can equities retest October lows if sentiment is already expecting this outcome? And Saul, that's sort of why we asked, has tech priced in all of yeah. the negativity already? Because a lot of people are asking that question. What do you think, Jeremy? Yeah, no, so the, I, I'm definitely a big follower of Warren's work and he, he he's definitely a little bit of on, on the bearish side, I'd say. The, I mean, the yield curve inversion is, has been a very good predictor of recession. I mean, coming back to my my fear of the Fed being too tight, that you know they, the, the the yield curve is one of the single best predictors of recessions, and so that is the risk in the short run. Now, people get overly bearish on recession because earnings, and and I know you have a chart on some of our earnings of what's happening. Um, the you know earnings are declining this year. They declined last year. Now earnings came in better than people expected. Uh, interestingly enough, you know now the question is how how much can they stay better than expected uh, throughout the course of the year? I, I was surprised how much small caps came out better. Yeah, than I think is are, is this the dashboard? Should we put the dashboard? Yes. Up? Yeah, so I love the- that you um, because I think when we're looking at earnings, sometimes you want to pull out and say, what is this telling us? So if we look at that, it might be a little hard to see. We'll drop it in the chat if we can as well, everyone. So is this something that people can find on the website? Is this accessible? So yeah, this is a new, this is hot off the press. You're going to get see more of this, but all the data from this comes something we have a, something called our earnings path tool. So every morning, particularly during earnings season, we're refreshing our earnings path tool. This this came, came directly from that. I format it like a little differently in this in this summary here, but we're going to make this another daily dashboard. But you can go through index by index and get a sense of how many companies are reporting, what's their average beat, uh, how what's the overall season. And the far left is are the companies who've reported and what's estimated. The middle box is what's been reported, and and the right is you know did they come in hotter or weaker than expected? And you see a lot of green on the right, and you see you know the small caps. Uh, are coming in better than the large caps. Um, but you know, the so- mid is really where it seems the strength is. And I'm really surprised that that given all of the sort of angst about whether it's price pressure or finding workers or avail- now availability of credit. Of course, that might be a forward story. But what, what do you think that's about, that mid-sized outperformance? Well, I, I think it's it's just that the recession hasn't showed up in the data yet here. You know, you're get you're st- it's still early in the SVB fallout. And this is what the Fed could point to saying, hey, companies are doing fine. Unemployment's at all time, you know, still at all time lows. We haven't really seen it manifest in 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 much weaker performance. Um, and so, you know, the, I think that's that's partly what's what's showing up is that the recession we expect it to get worse, but right now it's still coming in quite strong. And when I look through um, some of those stats, but also, um, you know, a couple of the other charts, communication and services, the biggest winner year to date, right? Social media, internet services, movies, entertainment, restaurant, that's really been performing well. And then, of course, we do have technology. But if we've got a recession coming, are we going to see a change in leadership? Well, I I still... You know what you've had leading this year has been those tech companies. So last year you had the Nasdaq down a third. You had high dividend stocks positive. So you know a high dividend basket was up mid single digit, seven eight percent last year when the Nasdaq was down thirty percent. That completely rotated again this year. So you have tech leading, 
high dividends lagging, partly that energy trade. I still really think the place to be is the 10 PE stocks versus the sort of 25 PE. You know, the, the, the basically the tech sector, um, and this was, a, I think, another chart I, I'd sent, Brian. Uh, basically, the X, you know, if you look at the, the expanded tech, this is the old tech definition for the S&P. You, you know, basically has the Amazon, which is now consumer discretionary. It has Facebook, Meta, which is now communication services, plus the traditional tech sector. That PE is today around 25. Um, you know, historically, it's been about 21. Now, some people say, you know, the outperformance of tech brings it back to February 2000 levels. That's been a, a chart that's been going around Twitter uh, from B of A research. And I say, hey, it's nothing like February 2000. We're still like half the valuations of where you were back then. So I'm not that extreme. I think it's expensive, but not tech, you know, February 2000 expensive. I mean, everything else outside of tech, by the way, is right at the meeting. It's sort of normal valuation, 16 times earnings. Not, you're not really at elevated multiples outside of the tech companies. And you say, hey, they're premium businesses. They deserve a premium multiple. But, you know, the, the, in, in a slowdown and there is going to be some cyclicality to some of their business models. I, I mean, the the, the big uh, a Meta is going to face advertising slowdown. Google is going to face advertising slowdowns. Apple is no longer growing anywhere near where they were growing. And what so about just, AI though? What about this AI juggernaut that's coming? We, well, we it's like here, it. not coming, but I mean, we've been doing tons of stuff on. Um, for anyone who hasn't been listening to Raoul's um, exponential interviews, I encourage you to because it's 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 about tech and it's about AI. Um, don't confuse it with some of the other stuff if you're not into the sort of digital asset world. This is much more plugged into, you know, the future of tech. And there's a, amazing stuff going on. Will that sort of pull in funds and elevate things, Jeremy, in a way, be that kind of, you know, game changer in a way that will will change the narrative around tech, do you think? Or is it just, just a, a lot of hype right now? Well, I think it is captivating. It's really definitely captivating all the minds. I mean, to have... Something like ChatGPT, the fastest product ever to get to 100 million users. I mean, everybody is talking about it. And so there is, some, I mean, it's, and it's interesting how this is not a novel technology. I mean, people have been doing things like this for so long, but they've hit it in terms of how they branded it, how they marketed it, how they positioned it. I mean, you could say people like IBM Watson should have been there much earlier. I mean, I, I, you don't know how many times I talk to IBM executives about Watson. By the way, they are back at it. There's yes. just an article kicking around today about how they're, pushing forward again, but absolutely. I mean, there are going to be a lot. This is like an arms race now with AI. Oh, yeah. So no, there's, it's definitely putting a lot of energy. And then you have things like the semiconductors, which are powering all these things, which is one of the plays. There's definitely, there's no question it's going to be a useful technology. The question would be, what, who's going to capture the profits? Where are the profits going to go over time? And that's going to be the big question is, is, is can they sustain their above average profit growth? Um, because they're not a cheap, you know, segment. And can they market. keep it behind the moat? That's the other one too, right? Just because they have it now, can they keep it? Um, does it stay in the domain of large companies or somehow does it sort of get out into the universe for other people? There's an interesting, some kind of memo, I think, from Google that was circulating around an internal um, this week. I want to, I want to, because we're going to run out of time soon. Um, I know the other positive thing, uh, we're going to, completely jump around here. Yeah. Positive thing that uh, Buffett was talking about was Japan. We mentioned it briefly, Ralph asking about Japan. Yeah. Um, what would you pick up from that? So I've been one of the, the lone bulls on Japan. You know, I feel like Jeff Winnegar and I are like two of the people who care about Japan. 
there's not many of us, but I've been out there talking about it for a long time now. And then Buffett came around and I like basically a week after he made his purchase, I said, follow Buffett into Japan. And I personally bought three of the five stocks he bought. Uh, you know, I've had a lot of Japan exposure myself, but what's, what's fascinating and, and in the very first sentence after he talks about it, you know, he's like, we also you know issued yen debt so that we can be currency neutral, which is a big topic I'm passionate about. I think very few people have invested internationally with this currency neutrality in mind that he basically says, I love the stocks. I think they're cheap stocks. I don't want to bet on the yen. Like what something could happen to the yen. I don't want to make a call on that. Yeah. He's getting very cheap financing. He talked about how his stocks have like 14% earnings yield. So he's borrowing at half a bit, half of a percent and buying 14% a great trade. Yeah. He's is really, that is that accessible to every day? The idea of being currency neutral, is that something that yes. individual investors can do? And you could get basically almost as good of a deal as Buffett with DXJ. So DXJ is our flagship Japan ETF. We're collecting a 5% carry. Why, why are we doing that? Because we're hedging the yen. And what's happening is the Fed has a 5% rate and Japan has a negative rate. We collect that 5% carry the same way, same reason why he could finance bonds at 50 basis points is we're collecting 5%. So we have a 5% carry, just like he has basically a 5% cost of arbitraging issuing debt. We get a 5% carry on top of DXJ, plus you have the local market return. Uh, and so, you know, that, and that's those stocks, you know, on average are yielding the same as his stocks. We have a broad basket of Japanese stocks. They have a 10 PE which is 10% earnings yield plus the 5% you get from hedging the yen. To me, it's it's a it's a great global, it's one of the best value stories. It's up more than the S&P this year. It's leading global markets. Um, to me, it's still one of our favorite places in a rotation to value. Mm. Japan is interesting. It's also got great positioning and being our ally in the geopolitical tensions in Asia um, with all these sort of conflicts in China. Japan is going to benefit from some of that. And so I think there's, um, you know, it's an interesting story. And 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 as, as I, I would say, continue to follow Buffett in Japan. DXJ is a good way if you don't want to buy individual stocks. It's, it's so interesting. And we know um, it's interesting about currency neutrality because we know we're, we're coming up in June. It's going to be an important time when we're looking at yield curve control and if they make any changes and people have been watching the yen closely around all of those developments. Um, Lena asking, will Jeremy comment on the bond yield, TLT? Well, you know, it's it's the inverted yield curve at almost 200 basis points between Fed funds and the 10-year, now maybe 180. Um, it's or between that USFR, which was 530, and, and the 10-year around 350, around 180. I, you know, in, 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 I, there was another chart going around Twitter this week saying Apple has been one of the best bond market timers that, you know, they issue bonds and you don't want to bet against their CFO from issuing bonds at lows in the cycle. It's sort of remarkable how well he's timed issuing bonds from Apple. Like, you know, in, in August of last year, he issued bonds like the day the five-year bond hit the bottom and then it sort of trended 100 basis points plus higher. Um, and he's throughout the last few cycles. So there is some signs that maybe some of the smart CFOs are saying, hey, yield should go higher. Um, you know, our, and again, our view is that there's some risks to the Fed being over tight. So the, the more recession fears, you say, hey, that's bond yields going down. So you have this push and pull of the inflation in the system versus the recession indicators. Um, you know, over time, we think the yields go down. So we think that the 10-year tips yields 
are probably higher than the long term. And so they would trend back down. Um, but then you got sort of this to Apple timing indicator as your new bond timing indicator. That, that has me scared about that yeah, view. Throw a wrench in it. Time. Well, nobody's perfect, but it's it's a it's a good sort of, you know, um counterpoint to think about for sure. Um, Jeremy, this was so fantastic. We covered so much ground. Um, we got to most of the questions. Sorry, I didn't get to all of them, but um, but it was a fantastic conversation and really appreciate you listening to Buffett for five hours because um, you brought us some information that I don't think made it into the headlines, but was a lot more interesting than some of the stuff that did. Thank you. Appreciate it. <laughs> it's great stuff. Great stuff. Um, and uh, we will be back. I just want to let everyone know we have tomorrow a live session happening, Academy Sessions. It's new. It's, it's with Roger Hurst. And we're going to break down some of the um, questions. We're going to have members join us uh, who have questions from having gone through the Academy which we're super excited about. So be sure to check that out at 11 a.m. And Jesse Felder will be back with us tomorrow at 4 p.m. Eastern uh, for the daily briefing. So please join us then. In the meantime, thanks again to Jeremy. It was great to see you. And to everyone listening, take care and good luck out there. What's up, revolutionaries? Thanks for tuning in to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. For more content like this, head over to realvision.com and get unfiltered access to the very best, brightest, and biggest names in finance.